This this message is coming out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, and we've, as a church, looked at uh, the beginnings of that. The glory of God finds its apex in the conjunction of His majesty and His meekness. When in long ages past, God spoke the innumerable galaxies into existence. And when He imagined fiery supernova into being, or when He called forth a nearly limitless variety of life upon this planet, that was glorious. But when this majestic God stooped down and plunged his hands into the clay and fashioned man from the dust of the earth and breathed in him the breath of life, that was supremely glorious. When this majestic God bends his ear to hear the cry of the widow or the orphan, when his heart breaks over the sufferings of his people. This is supremely glorious. We can fear a majestic God. We can worship a majestic God. And we can serve a majestic God. But we can also love a majestic God who condescends in meekness to serve and to save sinners by suffering in their place. That is amazing. It's unique. It's it's unique among all the so-called gods of this world. In other words, what God did was something no God would do in the minds of of the world. Our God is so majestic and sovereign that he does not need our service. In fact, he doesn't need anything. He is sufficient, and he is happy in himself. And out of his all-sufficient, sovereign joy, he condescends to serve sinners and thereby win the praise of his glory. The apex of God's glory is the conjunction of His majesty and His mercy, His supremacy and His servanthood. And the embodiment or the incarnation of this glory is Christ Jesus. And nowhere in all the Scripture is this peculiar glory on display in such brilliance as it is in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And on Sunday morning, we examine verses 5 to 8, in which the Apostle Paul describes this eternal majesty of the sovereign Son of God condescending in self-emptying meekness to take on humanity in His birth and then take on their sins in His death on the cross. Let's read it together. In Philippians 2, 5 to 8, Paul says, How this mind among yourse- Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. 
This evening, we do not gather to celebrate the birth of a baby. We gather to celebrate the majesty of God in a manger. The sovereign Son of God becoming meek and mild infant Jesus, whose birth was the first glorious act of a life of service to sinners, culminating in his atoning death on the cross. And as the second half of Paul's hymn to Christ demonstrates, for this reason, what reason? The eternal majesty with his self-emptying meekness, the cradle and the cross, God has given him the crown of heaven and earth. We read now in verses 9 to 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Tonight, we're going to meditate on those verses right there, which describe the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And even though the focus of this text looks beyond Christmas, beyond Good Friday, beyond Easter morning even, my hope is that seeing how the story of Christmas ends will multiply your joy as you celebrate his birth. We're gonna, we will structure our meditation this evening around three points. First of all, the reason. I want you to see the reason for his exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, it says. It points back to some ground or some reason for his exaltation. Why has God highly exalted the Son. Two reasons are stated in the previous verses. First, because he emptied himself of the privileges and the prerogatives of his deity. In other words, the right to all creatures to serve him. He took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men in order that he might serve sinners, in verse 7. And second, the reason he's exalted is because he humbled himself, became obedient to the will of the Father, and he suffered the death of the cross in order to save sinners. In verse 8, this is why God has highly exalted him. Because it is, it is now fitting that he should be highly exalted and receive worship and adoration of all creation. Again, its majesty is glorious. But majesty in meekness is supremely glorious. When the majesty of God was born in a stable to a virgin peasant girl, when the majesty of God was raised in the home of a poor Galilean carpenter, when the Son of Man was hated by the world, had no place to lay his head, was rejected, betrayed, abused, tortured, and finally crucified in service to sinners and in obedience to the Father. It would have been fundamentally wrong, unrighteous, evil, for him to remain in the grave and fade away 
in obscurity. So God raised him up, first from the dead and then to his right hand in heaven, and he highly exalted him. Why? Why exalt the Son? Because it is right and holy and fitting that Jesus be the object, get this, that Jesus would be the object of all saving faith and the recipient of all worship. He has performed the most glorious act ever known. Infinite majesty, condescending in infinite meekness, is worthy of infinite glory and unending worship. Secondly, tonight, not only the reason, but the reward. We note the reward of his exaltation in verse 9. Paul speaks of two rewards. First, God has highly exalted him. And second, God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So there's two questions that need to be answered. The first is this. In what way does Jesus' exaltation now differ from his exaltation before? It'd be just like Tim to ask himself the questions. Does Jesus now have more authority or, higher, or a higher position than he did before his birth and death? There are three ways to answer this, and all three of them add to it. First, the authority that Jesus now wields and the glory that he now has, he has as both God and man, the God-man, the incarnate Son of God. When Jesus took on humanity, he did not divest himself of his deity, but neither will he ever divest himself from his humanity. The flesh that emerged from Mary's womb and the flesh that emerged from Joseph's tomb is his forever. He remains throughout endless days, both God and man, in one person, Jesus Christ. That was not true of Jesus before the incarnation. Before, Jesus possessed authority and glory as the Son of God. Now he possesses authority and glory as the Son of God and the Son of Man. The Son of God was always with the Father, but now seated at the right hand of the Father is one who is truly and fully human. He has flesh and bone. Indeed, his flesh still bears the scars of his atoning wounds. Jesus added to his deity full humanity. And it's now as the God-man that he is highly exalted and worshipped. Secondly, about this, the authority which Jesus now wields and the glory which he now possesses is gladly seen and enjoyed by an innumerable company of redeemed saints from every tribe, every tongue, every people and nation, Revelation 7, 9 to 10, that was not true before the cradle and the cross. Dennis Johnson writes this, his ascent is not merely a return to the pre-incarnation status quo. Now, because of his obedient sufferings, an enlarged audience adores the glory, 
Not just of God, not just of Jesus, but of his grace. Thirdly, it's not that the eternal son of God is more glorious now. You cannot add to infinity infinite glory. Nor is it that he is more worthy of worship. You can't add to infinite worth. In other words, he's not more worthy, more glory, gloryful, glorified. Rather, it is that his glory and his worth have now been demonstrated and magnified by his suffering and service to us as sinners. It's been put on display, and therefore God has highly exalted him. I hope you get that. I hope you get that God, that Jesus is not more glorious. He's always been glory, glorious. But we see his glory more in his sufferings and his resurrection. In other words, the eternal son of God was highly exalted before, but now he is highly exalted as the incarnate son of God who suffered in service to sinners and in obedience to the Father and has thereby won the praise of all nations because he has demonstrated the supreme glory of God. Majesty in meekness, supremacy in servanthood. The second question that needs to be answered is, what's the name which God bestowed upon Jesus? There's basically two options. Is it Jesus or is it Lord? Although some think the name bestowed was Jesus, because verse 10 says, quote, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This is probably not what Paul intended. The name Jesus was bestowed upon the Son of God at his incarnation, at his birth, when the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make, take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her from the Holy Spirit is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's better to understand that name or title that God has bestowed in Philippians here as Lord. This is the name that every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth will one day confess in verses 10 to 11. This is the name that was bestowed upon Jesus at his resurrection and his ascension in Acts 2.36 when all authority in heaven on earth was given to him. But by Lord, Paul does not simply mean master or ruler or king. Well, what does he mean? Lord. He means Yahweh. He's quoting here from Isaiah 45 in which the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance to Jesus as Lord. It's not that the eternal Son of God was not Lord before, because He was. 
Rather, what Paul is affirming is that because of his suffering service to sinners and in submission to obedience to the Father at his resurrection and his ascension, God made Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the God-man, the conscious object of all saving faith, of the worship of the nations, and of the obeisance of all angels and men in heaven, on earth, and even in hell. Finally, we would note that the results of Christ's exaltation. What is that? Again, Paul states a twofold result of this. Jesus is acknowledged as Lord by all created beings, angels and men, holy and unholy, living and dead, in heaven and on earth and in hell. And God the Father is glorified as the architect and the designer of it all. Let's take a look closely at this. First, God has made Jesus the focal point of the universe, the dividing line of eternity. There are two types of beings included in Paul's universal declaration. I'm not talking about angels and men, though they are included, nor am I talking about the living and the dead, although they are also included. Rather, I'm talking about those who gladly bow their knee in submission to Christ and confess his lordship over all and thus will be everlastingly saved, and those who grudgingly bow their knee in submission to Christ and confess his lordship over all and will be everlastingly condemned. But make no mistake, all will acknowledge his majesty at the last day. Second, the universal acknowledgement of Christ's authority will redound to the glory of God the Father. On that day, Jesus, having received the glory of all creation, will turn to the Father and give glory to him. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 27 to 28, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What I'm about to say right now is classic Pastor Tim hopped. What I've said so far is some of the things that he had written in this message, and he wrote this line, and this is classic Tim. So if I could get a little taller, and if I could get a little wider with my arms... I have little doubt that this past Sunday and this evening represent the most theologically rigorous Christmas sermon preached in the state of Missouri this year. Thank you, Tim. The most rigorous theological Christmas message possibly in the state of Missouri. And then as I pick it up here, I agree with this. We, all of your pastors, we make no apology for this. 
without the theology that underlies Christmas, we're left to some imprecise sense of goodwill that makes Dickens' spirit of Christmas of the secular, unbelieving world. The world confesses a vague, insubstantial hope during this time of the year. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that the world tries to do something with Christmas, but it's so lame, it's so weak? Snowman, shopping, really? Gifts? The world confesses a vague, insubstantial hope during this time of the year, a hope that the world isn't as bad as it seems. Really? A hope that things will get better. A hope that there's some meaning in the midst of the apparent meaninglessness. That's not the hope of Christian Christmas. That's not the hope that Christians confess. Our hope is not vague. It's it's not imprecise. It's not insubstantial. Nor is our hope anchored in in the supposed goodwill of men. Really? Our hope is, you ready for this? Our hope is that the eternal Son of God left the majestic throne of heaven and He clothed Himself in meekness. He entered our world as a frail, tiny infant and He served and He suffered for the salvation of sinners. Then He was raised in glory and was exalted to heaven and put forward by the Father as the object of all saving faith and the one who will receive the worship of all creation. That's the Christmas story. I'd like to share with you an old hymn. We're not going to sing it tonight. We're going to sing another hymn that's uh, uh, 300 years old in just a moment. But this is a hymn that encapsulates, in my opinion, this encapsulates the cradle, the cross, and the crown. Christmas has its cradle where a baby cried. Did the lantern shadow show him crucified? Did he foresee darkly his life's willing loss? Christmas has its cradle and Easter has its cross. Christmas has its cradle, shepherds came to see, little son of Mary, lamb of God to be. Had his father warned him, none would grant him room, save in the Christmas cradle and in the Easter tomb. Christmas has its cradle, wise men came to bring, myrrh and gold and incense, offerings for a king. Myrrh alone stayed with him, death's balm for this boy from the Christmas cradle and to his Easter joy. Christmas has its cradle where that baby cried. In the Easter garden, Christ lay crucified. When death's power was conquered, God's life through him poured. Christmas has its cradle and Easter has its Lord. The cradle, the cross, and the crown belong together. There's a reason that we don't just leave Jesus in the cradle. 
There's a reason we don't leave Jesus on the cross. Because he has been exalted and is at the right hand of the Father and will someday come. He's alive tonight. The cradle, the cross, and the crown, they're one piece of the story of Christmas. It's one piece. It's not three. It's one. The cradle, the cross, the crown. Jesus. And my hope and prayer is that now you're able to sing by His grace and with His joy the words that were written 300 years ago by Charles Wesley. The song we're going to sing now goes like this. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold Him come, offerings of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King.